listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, pray as we open your word that you'll speak to us. We pray aware that... As we open your word, we open your word in a world that is still broken, in which you've had your victory in the cross, but we still await your return, when every tear will be wiped, all injustice will be destroyed. So we think about the world this week, numerous tragedies, we particularly pray for our sibling nation of New Zealand, for the beautiful city of Christchurch. Father, we pray for the hurting, for the injured, for the mourning there. I want to pray for the city which has been through a devastating earthquake. We particularly pray for the churches which lost their buildings, many of them, during that earthquake, but discovered a way to serve their city as they reached out to their community and served them. So we just pray that you'll be with the church in Christchurch, that again, they will be your hands and feet as they serve a hurting and broken city and serve their Muslim neighbours. Bless Christchurch. We ask in your name. Amen. Whenever there is a tragedy in the world and... In our social media age, one of the responses is that people send their thoughts and prayers. There's almost this sort of kickback uh, against that where people criticize the idea of sending particularly prayers. Part of that kickback comes from uh, recent history when various, uh, the history of that goes to when various um, US politicians would send their thoughts and prayers around school shootings. And the pushback was because people said, well, it's all well and good to send your thoughts and prayers, but then do nothing around legislation around guns. And so it's this zero-sum thing, like, well, then it's now grown as like a meme. Don't send your thoughts and prayers. But what's really interesting, uh, Myers, who's a sociologist, notes that the people who pray the most, who are most diligent about their faith, are also those who hope the most, who give the most money, who volunteer their time. So I just encourage you to keep praying. When you see things in the news, don't despair of the power of prayer. We can do both. We can pray and we can serve. So one wonderful way that and you see, when you see tragedies in the world and when you think of things like Christchurch and feel hopeless as your social media gets washed over with horrifying images, is that we have an opportunity to fill spaces of prayer. What an amazing thing it would be if some of us in the coming weeks spent an hour in the prayer room. If you're looking for things to pray for, Christchurch could be a wonderful thing to pray for. Anything that you see in the news, we have an opportunity. We pray today for the world we wish to live in tomorrow. We are in a series, which is our Lenten series, and it's called Jesus the Submitted King. 
And I want to talk um, or preach on one of the readings um, that has been part of the Lenten readings of this week. If you're reading from um, the booklet, uh, you'll be working through these different scriptures. You'll notice if you get a real macro view that certain themes start to come out. Look as you read them. They're not just random. They're chosen for a reason. And actually, the people who put together these readings are actually incredibly skillful and wise and smart at putting themes together. And you'll notice them come together. And I want to preach on one of them, which was one of the readings this week, which is Luke 4. We're going to turn to Luke 4, and we're actually going to begin at verse 1. There are Bibles in front of you. Apps to be downloaded. We live in an age where the Bible is at our fingertips. So, we're going to read this passage. And this is the story of Jesus who has just been baptized. He has then sent, sent just before he begins his ministry into the wilderness. He's 30. If you're 30, this is you at this age. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. I love these, like, super obvious verses in the Bible. But what's interesting is that when you look at these super obvious verses, there's actually something bigger going on. There's like a callback. There's like a sample in a song, which just could be a few bars of a previous tune. But if you know the previous tune, you know the person who's taken the sample is trying to do referencing that past music. My daughter loves Star Wars. And she like watches YouTube like channels on Star Wars. And these people like every week just talk about Star Wars for hours. Now, growing up as a boy, when I was her age, I liked Star Wars. But for me, Star Wars was just three movies and a few action feats. And for me, it's just this linear thing. So I just know those movies. My daughter will be watching the new movies, and she'll be pointing out stuff to me. I've got no idea what these little references are. Like, she's telling me how, in one of the scenes in, I think it was in the Solo movie, how behind there's these, like, helmets, and that's the reference to this obscure thing. And in her mind, Star Wars isn't just the three movies. It's like, what is it, the nine, is there nine movies? Um, it's the TV series, it's the animation things, it's novels, it's this whole world. I exist in this, like, I know the three movies. She lives in a universe. When we read scripture, the scripture is actually asking us not to be people who like Star Wars like me and just like the three movies. It's actually asking us to be full-born universe Bible nerds, where you're living in the entire universe. And as you get to know it, you'll notice all the different references back. So here is this reference back of not eating for 40 days. It's this concept of a fast. We see the people of God, after they walk into the wilderness for 40 years, wander. Moses fasts himself for 40 days. It's this callback to something that's happened before. And whenever you have one of these callbacks, you need to start noticing what is going on. Enter stage left. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, again, callback. 
When has the devil appeared? The devil is not turning up heaps in the Bible. It's not like he just keeps showing up like the supervillain in every scene. Again, this is another callback. We have a callback to the devil appearing to a man called Job. Or not a man called Job, but before God to tempt Job. We have the callback, which this is referencing to, to Eden, where the devil appears to tempt humanity. Something's going on bigger than just Jesus going into the desert for a cleanse. Jesus answered, verse 4, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I just want to repeat that. That's at the center of this little passage. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift up your hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus, uh, Jesus is having literal scripture quoted at him. This is Psalm 91. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil finished the tempting, all the temp- this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Now, what I want to do is I want to show you something in this passage that Jesus is teaching us. And it's a great time to read this. And last week, Britt spoke uh, in about fasting. This continues the theme of fasting, but it shows another light on the practice of fasting, but a bigger concept around what's going on here. And this is a great time to look at it as we're in this Lenten period. And Britt said before, too, that second week in, stuff comes up. And can I just say, like, when you're in pastoral ministry, there's like, you hear stuff of people coming back, and there's a lot of stuff coming up for people. There's been particular themes around distraction for people who are attempting to push into God, and they're being distracted with quite a amount of force. There's also disruption going on, distraction, disruption, and also there's a lot of actual division that's actually been happening. There's people finding as they fast stuff coming up from their pasts, stuff that's got people in captivity now. So if you're there, Jesus is showing how do you be a faithful worshipper in a time of fasting. And the way Jesus does this is a concept which you may have heard before, you may have never heard this before, but I think is one of the great moves of the spiritual life. Moving in the opposite spirit. Moving in the opposite spirit. Okay, to explain this, we have to understand the meta thing that's happening here. That Jesus is deliberately walking in a particular way here, which is undoing something. And there's a parallel here between Jesus and what happens in the book of Exodus when the people of God leave captivity in Egypt. But there's also something bigger, and I just want to use this as part of looking at Jesus' bigger life and compare it to something. And that's Adam and Eve. Adam, meaning human, 
And in Corinthians, Paul talks about Jesus as this new Adam, the second Adam, this new human. So what Jesus is showing us in this passage, in this fasting, is a new way to be human. And so there's these really interesting parallels that what Jesus is doing is Jesus is going back to the start of the story. When Adam and Eve find themselves where after being cast out in the wilderness. And Jesus is going back to that place and he's going to do it in the opposite spirit and show us his plans for renewal in the world. Now, Adam and Eve when we encounter them, live in Eden. Eden is a good place where God's presence is fully there. But, again, the devil turns up to tempt. And the devil turns up to tempt, not with a full frontal assault, he turns up to tempt with a dangerous question. It's a question which makes them doubt God, and ultimately, it's the temptation that what if they could have power themselves to be worshipped like gods, to be like gods. And following this temptation, giving into it, it means that they're then cast out of God's presence. They lose the closeness of God. So, this results in this worship of self and this temptation comes into the world to instead of worshipping God, to worship ourselves and act like we're gods when we're not. And the ramifications of this is that they then depart from God's presence. So often, when we don't feel God's presence, He may be withdrawing His presence because He's trying to illuminate that we're worshipping ourselves somehow, somewhere. Let me say it again. Sometimes, God will seemingly withdraw His presence to illuminate to us that we are holding something back, worshipping something apart from God. And so those two things are often linked, as it was here, when humans fell into sin. Now Jesus almost does this in reverse at this bit. They begin in the garden. Jesus begins in the wilderness at the beginning of His ministry. And he goes in the opposite spirit. Where Adam and Eve worship self, he worships God. Remember what I said in verse 8 of Luke 4, Jesus answers the devil when everything in the world is given to Satan and he offers it to Jesus. Jesus could become some kind of superhuman, super king. Have it all, satiate your desires. What does Jesus answer? His answer is the answer that Eve and Adam should have given. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. He goes in the opposite spirit, where Adam and Eve are cast out of the presence of God and God is no longer close. What do we see with Jesus? Jesus begins here, He's reversing it, going in the opposite spirit. What does He do? This is Jesus, He's God, He comes down to earth like people should be worshipping Him. He just is a tradie for 30 years in a carpentry business. Now you're God, you're rocking around and no one is giving you the due that you respect as God. Can you imagine how humbling that must be? And then 
to even seal that at the beginning of his ministry, when it's time for him to go into ministry, what does he do? He goes to a man, John the Baptist, whom Jesus is a far more superior leader than. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God incarnate. And he goes to this person who is his inferior, and he asks him to baptize him. Now, just think about the physical reality of that. You are going to this person who then dunks you in the water. He's humbling himself. And through this act of humbling and worshipping God and not giving in to the worship of self and pride, the Spirit descends upon Jesus. Now, this could be strange because Jesus is God, but I think what's happening here is Jesus is showing us how to be fully human. And so the beginning of this passage we see in verse 1, Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit and he's led into the wilderness by the Spirit for a reason. Now, when we begin to carry on what comes from these two lines, Adam and Eve are commanded by God to go forth and multiply, but now they're outside of the garden. They're apart from God's presence. And what can they do? They're created in God's image, yet they're fallen. So what they do is they give birth to some children, two boys, Cain and Abel, And Cain murders Abel. He murders Abel because he's trying to manipulate and he's jealous of God. And it's this exchange with God over who sacrifices what worship. And again, too, faith is being wrestled around the self. Now, it's really interesting, too, that This is like another kind of fall. You watch in Genesis, it's like they get out of the presence of God and then there's a murder and it just continues on. There's a series of falls here. Now, interestingly, Jesus is not married. Jesus does not have a wife. If you ever saw the film or read the book, The Da Vinci Code, its big thing was, oh, what if Jesus had a wife? How shocking that would be. Well, Martin Luther, the classic Christian writer, said it wouldn't be shocking at all, like, It's not like the church is like, no, no one can be married and no one can have children. Like, the church celebrates that. I think the reason, or one of the possible reasons Jesus did not have children, there's many, but I think one of the reasons is that if he'd had children, it would have created a dynastic battle to follow Jesus' children. Islam split into Sunni and Shia, and the entire sort of argument is over who are the descendants of the Prophet Muhammad. And there's one group which says you should follow the people who seem to be his children, and the other group says you should follow the people who sort of ordained. And there's this whole thing around, it's about dynastic. If you look at royal families throughout history, wars have begun over who is the rightful king. There is a guy in West Australia who genealogists have discovered actually is the rightful heir to the British, British crown. That they worked out, going back to the 1200s, that there was one particular king, and he didn't see his wife for like 14 months, yet somehow she got pregnant in that time. So they then worked out who was close to her, and they did this whole thing. And so this guy is now pretty much proven that he is the rightful heir to the British crown. So technically, he could get an army and rock up to Buckingham Palace and go, out. I'm in. Give me that crown. Uh, It's party time. (laughs) 
Now, to do that, the only way you could do that is actually to do that by military force. It's not like when that was revealed, the queen was like, oh, oh, this is a bummer. Um, I'm going to go on the pension now and just, like, get a government house somewhere in the Midlands. When you have dynastic succession, as it's called, it creates danger. Whenever a president in a non-democratic society or a king is dying and there's a battle over his children or her children, it creates wars. Now, what's really interesting is the people who come from Jesus are not his physical children. It's actually about being in relationship with him, but it's not a flesh and blood relationship. It's a spiritual relationship. You don't have to be related to the king. You just have to know him. To have been given his gift of grace as he died on the cross. And so Jesus doesn't give birth to a dynastic line. He gives birth to a spiritual family. The church is the spiritual family. It's really interesting too, Leon Cass makes this point that if you look at the Old Testament story, so many of the women in that story, people like Sarah, Abraham's wife, actually can't have children. And they have children very late in life where the only way they can have a children is through an absolute miracle of God. He speculates, he wonders that if you look at when Israel was surrounded by other nations, what did the other nations worship? They worshiped female fertility gods whose power is in the fact that they could just give birth to multiple children. If you look at those idols, they've got childbearing hips and multiple breasts. They're like, I am so powerful because I can just produce thousands of children. So there's this power in fertility. But Israel goes a different story that's actually a power in the powerlessness. He gives children to women who can't have children of their own. And God comes in a miracle. And he goes in the opposite spirit. He doesn't provide this huge line. We see God going in the opposite spirit here. Now what's really interesting too about Cain is after Cain murders his brother, he's marked. And it talks about him wandering. At the beginning of Genesis, the people of God were home in Eden, home with Eden, home with God. But now he's a wanderer and it has this term that he's always east of Eden. And what that means is this tragic term that he can always see Eden in the distance, but he can never get back there. He's always hungering and longing for what he has lost. That's all of us. All of us have hunger for things which, when we get what we think we want, it doesn't satiate it. The person who wants that particular model of car, but as soon as they get it, there's a newer one that comes out. That person, if I only could date that person, be with that person, and then when you're with that person, three years later they're annoying you with their little quirks. If I could just get that job, if I could just move to that city, this insatiable hunger in humanity, the Bible shows us is actually a hunger and a disordered desire pushed in the wrong direction, but ultimately is a desire for God and to again be home. So 
Adam and Eve's line of sin gives birth to those who hunger for what is lost, always missing Eden. Jesus, his children, the people of God, hunger for something else. They don't hunger for what is lost because they've found the sacred pearl. They've found Jesus. The people who wander and follow Jesus during his ministry, the people excluded from the religious circles, the people who encounter the Messiah, people today who have found Jesus, they don't hunger for what is lost because they've found what they're looking for. Their heart then begins to be aligned and Jesus moves in the opposite spirit of a hunger which is trying to satisfy the human desire for control and autonomy and instead, he reshapes us, moves us in the opposite spirit to not hunger inward and consume, but actually look outward. And Matthew 5 tells us in the Beatitudes, those who hunger for righteousness, for the world to be made right and renewed. When you see events like we saw this week in Christchurch, and you see it and it's just so absolutely wrong and your heart breaks, that's hunger for righteousness, for the world to be made right. And God creates His people to hunger for righteousness. Cain after killing his brother and wandering for some time, then does what his parents did and gives birth to a son. It says that he builds a city then to dedicate to his son, to make a name for his son. This is the sense to have a legacy. He's trying to get eternity, but do it in this world. And so he tries to do heroic things like building a giant city so he won't be forgetten, forgotten and his children will be remembered. And in the biblical understanding, this is the cities of Mesopotamia, this is the cities which become the, the ancestors to the great city Babylon, which is a true city, but also symbolic of the cities that oppose God, whether they be Babylon or Rome or the cities of our day. And Cain gives birth to this kingdom of humans, which opposes God, the systems of the world which resist God. And their cycle is destruction. Again, quoting Leon Cass, Cass says that we build, they build the city walls to keep evil out, but the city walls just perpetrate more evil, and the evil is in the city walls. Jesus. Also, go back one step. Cain, ultimately, this desire to build a city is around fear and a desire for safety. And this releases into the world destruction. Humans' attempt to solve problems creates more problems. Jesus, in contrast, creates a different kind of kingdom. It's not a kingdom based around buildings. It's not a kingdom based around armies. It's this bizarre upside-down kingdom based on kindness and love and humility where those who are at the bottom of what the world values are first in the door. And Jesus comes into an Israel 
which is hungry for a powerful king with an army to free them from Roman oppression, to build the city up again into something great, to be the greatest nation and the world's superpower. And yet Jesus' kingdom is the opposite to all of that. Where do we find Jesus? Not in the halls of power. When we do find him in the halls of power, he's challenging the halls of power, but we find him in the countryside, talking to those despised, the tax collectors, those who feel far from God. He is creating something different that's based on faith and trust. The opposite of fear is not courage. It's faith. And so he models this faith in his Father, this walking with his Father, this communing with his Father. It's interesting when Satan quotes to him Psalm 91 in the wilderness. Satan ignores the first part of the verse, which Psalm 91 verse 1 is, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Jesus dwells in that safety of His Father. He's willing to walk with Him even to the cross. And that on the cross, the humility of His kingdom is shown in fullness and there's a different kind of faith that He's living where you worship the Lord God only and serve Him. He follows His Father's commandments to the cross and gives His life on the cross to defeat evil, to take the sin of the world, so that you and I may walk in salvation. And through this dying to self on the cross, for three days he's in the ground, but then he emerges from the tomb and he is releasing blessing. Before he goes on the cross, he's releasing blessing. And the kingdom of God is there to release blessings into the world, where the kingdoms of the world release more destruction Jesus' kingdom releases blessings into the world. It's just flowing out of Jesus. That wonderful story of the woman who has bled her whole life. You could not go and worship if you were a Jewish woman, if you had your monthly cycle. But this poor woman is continually bleeding. The Jewish women, when they have their monthly cycle, they would go to a traditional or religious bath called a mikveh, and they would purify themselves, and then they could go and worship. But this woman is continually bleeding. She never can be in God's presence forever on the outer of the religious system. And she sees Jesus, and all she does is touch the hem of his coat. And Jesus turns and says, hang on, I just felt power go out of me. Now, that's just not some, like, force. That's actually because Jesus is releasing blessings into the world. He's blessing people just by his mere presence. We get to, into Genesis, and we see that it has this part where it says the world, the people that had followed from Cain and Abel, these cities that had been created that they were so evil, that everyone had continual evil in their heart, Genesis says, and the world is destroyed in the flood. The story 
of where this goes is that humans creating the self-worship of self create a world which is based on tragedy and hopelessness and judgment. Because judgment ultimately comes in the form of the flood, and it's actually a judgment which is deserved because evil has completely gone out of control. And one of the great stories of our day is that evil can be rectified by education or public advertising campaigns. But again and again, that story is being destroyed, and evil is resilient and prevalent. But God's opposite story is actually that the world is redeemed. Through Jesus' death on the cross, through the kingdom of God breaking into our now, the world is redeemed. And we have a future which is a hope, and it's a future, and it's a future of salvation and shalom, meaning peace or wholeness. And so what Jesus is doing during this time is he's showing us a very different way to move. In Joel 2, it says that the ultimate problem with the world is that our hearts are wrong. It tells us that we need to rend our hearts, to tear our hearts, to repent. And heart in the biblical imagination is not just about your feelings, it's really the inner person, your thoughts, your memories, your desires, your feelings, that ultimately when you track all the problems in the world, they lie there because our hearts are set wrong by our worship of ourselves, of idols, and in our culture, particularly individualism and us. So Jesus is showing us in the wilderness what to do about this. He's going ahead and he's illustrating what it is to walk in the opposite spirit. He goes and he says no to the desires of his body for a bigger goal. Jesus continually is walking in the opposite spirit. Paul, who follows after Jesus as one of the great apostles, begins at the beginning of Acts as a man of influence and power at the center of the religious establishment who are chasing the Christians. And then by the end, he's this guy who's almost got to beg people to turn up, who's beaten and gnarled and simply makes tense. But in the upside-down kingdom, going the opposite spirit, he is incredibly powerful. And so we are invited through what Jesus' example here, particularly at a time like Lent, to walk in the opposite spirit. And this actually says that this is something that you don't simply just adhere to. And I believe Jesus died on the cross. This is saying that you something you actually have to walk into in an opposite spirit. That when the world is walking that way, you walk this way. This requires thinking in the opposite spirit. Some of you are beset by negative thoughts, thoughts which seem to wage war on you, thoughts which are destructive. Your thoughts really are what Joel is talking about. The heart was seen to be the seat of thoughts as well. And so there's this invitation to think in the opposite spirit, to say, God, what do you want to do here? To not be stuck by the limiting beliefs that you have in your head. Paul tells us that we're to renew our minds, meditating upon God, 
allowing us to change the very thought patterns of our minds. God is inviting some of you. Stuff has come up during this time of fasting in Lent, and God is asking you to run a new script in your brain, which is actually based on faith and trust in Him, which will open up whole new possibilities for you. God is asking you to pray in the opposite spirit. When someone who is frustrating you, it's actually God pray blessings on them. The situation you're worried about, to pray that actually God will turn it to His good. Praying is also about changing us, not just trying to change God's heart. And when you find yourself wondering what to pray, I encourage you just to open your Scriptures. You have an entire repository of the most incredible prayers, particularly in the book of Psalms. And just start praying them. Praying them over situations. Praying them over yourself. Praying them over your household. Praying them over your workplace. Pray in the opposite spirit. If you are beset by anxiety and you're sitting there and you're hunched over, stand up and raise your hands, as the scriptures say, to praise with your hands raised, or pray with your hands raised, and actually say, Father, I just want to pray opposite to this. I just want to thank you that I am not hopeless, that I am your child. I want to thank you, Father, I don't need to be in fear, but I have your faith. Go in the opposite spirit to what your feelings are telling you. What this tells us too is to have faith in the opposite spirit. What do I mean by this? What's so interesting is that when the devil comes to Jesus, just as he did with Eve, he doesn't come and say, hey, listen, you're not so hot right now. Egyptian paganism. But hey, Jesus, there's all this incredible pantheon of awesome Roman gods like Mars, Greek gods like Apollo, Zeus. Like, just, just jump off this... Yahweh thing, and come over here, let's worship these, because they're real popular right now. He doesn't tempt him to say, there is no God. So he doesn't tempt him with paganism, he doesn't tempt him with atheism, he doesn't say, actually, I've got this idol for you, Jesus. Here it is, Shazam, the greatest idol in the world, made of turquoise. I don't know why. Satan tempts Jesus, not with paganism, not with atheism, not with some other religion. He tempts him with a faith that seems biblical, even quoting verses selectively at him, but ultimately is centered on worship of self. If you are a follower of Jesus... The devil is more likely, I'm not going to say it's never going to happen the other way, but he's most likely going to tempt you with a form of Christianity that seems right, that you may even become self-righteous about, but will leave your individual autonomy intact and you on the seat of your personal throne. That, I'm afraid to say, has been one of the devil's great tricks, particularly in the Western church. 
to create a Christianity which is ultimately about us and God delivering us stuff. So, there's an invitation here not to just get stuck in self. One of the great sayings at Red, which we say all the time, is personal renewal leads to corporate change. When you come and do, we did Red Apprentice Leaders last year, we've done Red Apprentice Ministers. One of the things you just hear said all the time is personal renewal leads to corporate change. And the idea behind that is that you need to change on the inside first before you can change. Stephen Covey said it in this way, he said, private victories come before public ones. That if you go into public and you have influence and you've still got battles internally, you need to win your inner battles to then be effective and used in public. And I really believe in that statement, personal renewal leads to corporate change. However, when that begins to happen at a moment like this, when we're pushing into God and we're in this process of renewal and we're fasting and praying and filling 24-hour prayer calendars, the devil, what he'll do is, is one of his tricks is to try and move the energy that's already happening but take it off track by a few inches. A few inches here means miles off down the road. And so... What he will try and do is just keep you stuck at eternal, personal renewal, which never flows into corporate change. And so Red becomes this church where there's great stuff happening, but it's just endless personal renewal. And what we learned in the story of Jesus, that the kingdom of God is actually about releasing blessings. The blessings don't just happen to you so you have a more balanced, peaceful, mindful, centered life. The actual blessings come because we're here to bless the world. That they overflow, they come out of us. Let us not walk in the temptation of a Christianity based on self. Let's go in the opposite spirit, as Jesus did. Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. And is the great line in Moby Dick, as the preacher in the novel Moby Dick says, to obey God, you have to disobey yourself. Walk in faith in the opposite spirit. If you feel during this Lent period, like, oh, I want to do this, I want to do this, oh, go in the opposite way. Go to spiritual war with yourself. It's fun. (laughs) Not really. So we're being called then to be... Go on. (laughs) The last one is to be a church in the opposite spirit. To be a church in the opposite spirit. In a time where people are lonely, to be actually a church of connection, to be a time of selfishness, to actually be a church of generosity, to be in a time when people are saying, this is all there is, squeeze it out, it's all chemicals, who cares, just party on, to actually be a world center, there's a bigger mystery in the world, there's something greater, there's a story which goes beyond the temporal, there's something happening here, do you sense it? To be in a world which is focused on self, to actually be focused on others. God has a heart for red. God has a heart to see the church in our city grow. This book tells the story 
of God's love for us, who came down to earth, who showed us how to be human, who died on the cross, gave his life for us. And we want more people to hear about this because we believe this is actually the answer. And the devil actually doesn't want people to hear about this. This is one of his great campaigns. So we need to be a church that goes in the opposite spirit. What this service is, this, has been, this is a great service. There's people pressing into God here. But God wants this to grow and go beyond. And it's not just about ticking boxes or numbers or whatever. God wants a pulsating spirit filled, a live place where people are living out the kingdom and you come and you sense it and you feel it. That goes out into where you work, who you relate to, where you're his agents of influence in the world, that you're living this opposite spirit. And you're not there because you're talking it and you're saying all these wonderful things. You've got bumper stickers on your head. Why would you have a bumper sticker on your head? I don't know. That's just what came to me. But actually people say there's something about that person. They're walking in opposite spirit. They're different to everything that the world is. I want that. And they don't want you, they want him. And when his presence is in you, like it filled Jesus, do you realize that the more you fast and get rid of this stuff, it creates open space and absences into which his presence comes. And so this period of Lent and this fasting is not just about us. It's not even to give you a better faith. It's actually to create a better world. So it's not about becoming more comfortable. It's actually about the fact that this world desperately needs God and God is moving it towards his ends. He's bringing a world of shalom and salvation. Let's join him in doing that. Let's stand. Father, we don't want to be people just bewitched by ourselves in a world which tells us that it's just all about us. Father, we desperately desire to see your kingdom come. We desperately desire to see your Holy Spirit move with power in our church. We desperately desire to see the Holy Spirit move in power beyond our church. Father, during this time of fasting, where we align our hearts with your heart, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Help us to see a world in need. Take us, Father, from personal renewal to corporate change, not just at Red, but beyond. Give us a heart for the lost. Give us a heart for the hungry. Give us a heart for the broken. Jesus, help us to see the world, not through the glasses of this age, but actually through your kingdom lenses. Father, rend our hearts so that you may pour your spirit upon us, old and young. Give us dreams. Give us visions. Give us a heart for what you see. Show us how we can be your vessels, your servants, your instruments. Father, take our eyes off ourselves. Take our eyes off our endless self-questioning and self-thinking and worries and put them on you. Help us to worship you only. Free us from the tyranny of self-Jesus and help us to find home in you. May we no longer, as believers, be east of Eden because we have you now, Jesus. You died on the cross. You're close, you're here. So just now, I just want to pray for your Holy Spirit, which is already here, but instead for us to take our eyes off ourselves and to be aware of what the Spirit's doing in the room. We pray, Spirit, come into our hearts. Lift up our heads. 
lift up our eyes from what's just happening in front of us to the bigger thing that you're doing. I particularly want to pray for stuff that's coming up during this time of Lent. Maybe hurts from the past, maybe blockages, addictions, things which have taken hold. Break them, Jesus. Break them in Jesus' name. I particularly want to pray against the temptation of the devil. Who at times, he comes to Jesus when Jesus is physically weak, when Jesus is fasting, when Jesus is isolated. If anyone is isolated here, Father, and the enemy is attempting to pick them off, we actually say, be gone in Jesus' name. We actually pray for anyone who's being tempted by repeated negative thoughts in their mind. Renew those minds, Father. Lift them to something higher. Lift them to you. Help us to see that you're in control. You have got this. You're moving history to your ends. We can follow Jesus. We can trust you in the high places where we fear our feet may slip. You're there. You've gone ahead. Father, thank you that you will move your history towards your purposes, that we need to fear nothing. So Jesus, release us into who you want us to be. Let's just allow him to begin to move now. We have communion. We can come and eat. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, they couldn't commune with God. We can commune with him. Come and commune with him. In this time of fasting, on this day of worship, we come and we eat with him. So let's now just come. Let's eat with him and Tell him to take our hunger for the things that are not of God and replace it with the hunger for his righteousness. Yeah, spirit, just work amongst us.